Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Twenty first of October, nineteen sixty six, nine thirteen a.m. Panglass School in the small Welsh mining village of Aberfan. Inside the school, more than two hundred children and nine teachers were waiting for their first lesson of the day to begin, when the air was filled with the sound of a distant rumble. A massive coal tip, a mountain of waste generated by the town's mines that employed eight thousand people, had collapsed and a landslide of mud and debris flooded into the classroom, burying the school and engulfing everyone inside. 116 children and 28 adults were killed. It was one of the worst industrial disasters Britain has ever seen, an accident that could and should have been prevented, and a tragic account of a mistake that cost the village an entire generation of its children. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley presents the heartbreaking story of the Aberfan disaster. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now, it's good. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. One of the byproducts of the coal mining industry is a large amount of waste products. Waste products that have no use or value and which create problems for the mines in how to dispose of them. Traditionally, the method employed consisted of dumping the waste into vast spill heaps or tips. In 1966, the Pennant Sandstone Mounting on the west side of the Taff Valley, overlooking the small mining village of Aberfan, 
supported seven massive spoil heaps believed to contain a total of something in the region of two and a half million cubic yards of mine waste. The tips were created by a crane tipper which ran along a short length of horizontal track along the top of the spoil heap. The crane would pick up each mine cart, overturn it so that its waste content spread down the ever-increasing slope and then return it upright to a steel plate which would then guide it back onto the rails. At the time of the disaster of the seven tips on the mountain, only tip seven was active. The tip was started in 1958 and by 1966 it contained 296,000 cubic yards of waste, 30,000 of which was a fine slurry called tailings. Now, these tailings were not present in the other six tips and although not directly responsible for the impending tragedy, their presence certainly affected the quality of the material that would engulf Aberfan. And it was not the waste material in the tip that was the primary cause of the disaster, but water. Aberfan and the surrounding areas can expect to receive anything up to two metres of rainfall per year. The mountain itself is perforated with water-resistant fissures and minor coal seams. Spring lines run underneath the surface and the rainwater penetrates down through the sandstone before forcing its way up through to the surface along the fissures. When you add all of these elements together, the heavy annual rainfall, the water springs, the location of the tip along with its composition, it was inevitable that a disaster would happen. And if that wasn't worrying enough, Aberfan very nearly experienced a similar tragedy with tip number four just over 20 years earlier in 1944. Tip number four was started in 1922 and was the second highest after tip five. As time went by, it grew higher and higher, and it soon became evident that it had been positioned over the source of a major stream. But despite this knowledge, no attempt was made to drain the area or to channel off the streams that would eventually be overwhelmed. And so, as the tip grew ever more, the flow of water continued to drain into the bottom of the ever-growing pile of coal waste. Tip 4 eventually collapsed on the 27th of October 1944 and a vast section of it slid down the side of the mountain for a third of a mile, stopping just a hundred yards short of the disused Glamorgan Canal. National Coal Board regulations indicated that there was no need to report the slip and as such very few people outside the surrounding area were ever aware of it. But for the villagers of Aberfan it was a constant reminder of what could happen and the potential danger that they faced every single day. Tip 4 was now unworkable, so waste tipping shifted to Tip 5 in 1945. Incredibly, again with no ground surveys or preparation of any kind, Tip 5 would grow to be the tallest, its base higher up the mountain. And within six years, it too covered a water source and its outflowing channels, and there was evidence of a huge, threatening swelling emerging on its southeastern edge. But regardless of this, no safeguards were put in place, and tip number five grew larger and larger until work on it was halted in 1956. Apparently, there was no clear reason as to why this particular tip became redundant, although it's now believed that this was due to its vast size, early signs of slippage, and incredibly, the fact that it was also partially alight. 
Work on tip number six began in early 1956 and yet again no preparatory site studies or groundwork was undertaken. But in relation to the other five tips, tip number six had a relatively short lifespan. Not because of any natural or geographical reasons, but a neighbouring farmer who just happened to point out that the coal board was tipping the waste directly onto his land. A new site would have to be found for tip number seven. And in doing so, the fate of the village of Aberfan and an entire generation of its yet unborn children would soon be decided. To all extents and purposes, the location of tip number seven was just as random as the previous six, with once again there was no land surveys, no consideration to geological factors, and by all accounts the men responsible for sighting the tip had no background in civil engineering or tip design. Even more astounding at the tribunal following the accident, it was revealed that none of the men involved even took a map with them when deciding where the tip should be. Its location, south of the mineral line, directly downslope from the ill-fated tip number four, meant that the new expansion path of the waste would eventually take it directly across the slip material from tip four and the very same stream of water that caused the original slip in 1944. A disaster in the making. Friday the 21st of October 1966, a misty but calm and windless start to the day in Aberfan. Weather records indicate that there was six and a half inches of rain in the area for the whole of October, half of which had fallen in the previous week. At around 7.30, crane operator Vivian Thomas and slinger David Brown made their way towards the peak of tip number seven, along with several of their co-workers as they did most workday mornings. Their usual companion, charge hand Leslie Thomas, was down at the colliery, giving his weekly report to the colliery engineer Vivian Thomas. Every morning they would make their way up towards the active point of the tip for the usual inspection, before moving the crane up ready for the workday's activities. But this particular morning there was something severely wrong. The rails on which the crane travelled had fallen ten feet into a pit, this obviously needed to be reported, and as if all the elements of the perfect storm that had been brewing over the years wasn't enough, a further incident only added to what was about to happen. There'd recently been a series of cable thefts at the mine and its surrounding area. As a consequence of this, the colliery managers had removed the ganger's telephone from the site. There was nothing else for it but for David Brown to make his way down to the colliery to alert the charge hand Leslie Thomas and as the sun valiantly tried to pierce its way through the mist that was hanging low in the valley, Brown and the others started to move the crane back from the edge of the hole and attempted to retrieve the landing plate. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, the rest of the sleepy village of Eberfan gradually started to come to life. Children were being woken by their mothers, urged to get dressed, eat their breakfasts and make their way to the village school for the last day of lessons before the half-term holiday. 
That fateful Friday morning was dark, damp, very misty, with a fine drizzle in the air. The front of Panglass Junior School overlooked Moy Road. The classrooms at the rear of the school looked directly towards the mountains and the seven threatening tips. To the right of the school was the senior school and its playground. Children began to arrive as if it was any other normal school day. Taking off their wet coats and anoraks, they made their way into assembly. The hymn for the day was All Things Bright and Beautiful. Following assembly, the children made their way back to their classrooms to begin lessons for the day. Back at the mine, David Jones had found Leslie Thomas, who in turn reported the news about tip number seven to the colliery engineer. An oxyacetylene cutter team was sent up the mountain to cut off the overhanging rails. Thomas ordered Davis to stop tipping and told him that on the Monday following he would come on site himself and find a new tipping place, what would become tip number eight. Davis, Jones and the two men with cutting equipment climbed back up Merthyr Mountain, arriving at nine o'clock. While they'd been away, the depression had doubled in depth. Davis told Brown to move the crane further back, but before doing anything they all retired to their cabin for a cup of tea. Only David Brown stayed outside the cabin, staring down from the edge of the depression. And as he looked, he suddenly saw it begin to rise back up. Initially unable to comprehend what he was actually seeing, the depression was slowly moving. It then began to pick up speed and rose up at a terrific rate. As it came out of the depression, it turned itself into a wave and began its rapid descent through the mist, down the mountain and towards the village of Aberfan. David Jones shouted out of the top of his lungs, bringing the others out of the cabin. They ran for their lives as the deafening roar followed them. Running blindly through the mist, down tips three, two and one, shouting desperately at each other, all they could see were waves of slush, muck and water. It was now just before 9.15. Back at the school, Mr Davis was writing some maths classwork on the blackboard. The children attentively looking up and copying it down in their exercise books. And then there was what could only be described as a low rumble of thunder in the distance that just got louder and louder and louder. The children froze in their seats as they watched helplessly as the ceiling lights suspended above them on long wires started to shake back and forth 
and a large black mass of liquid coal suddenly appeared in the large classroom windows. Some got up to run, but it was no use as blackness engulfed the entire school. A farmhouse and several cottages lay directly in the path of the slide and were instantly wiped off the map, killing everyone within. 140,000 cubic yards of black slurry hit the disused canal, fracturing the water main that had been laid along it and then leaping the old railway embankment. As the slide hit the village itself, it destroyed 18 houses and completely engulfed Panglass School and part of the neighbouring county secondary school before finally coming to rest on the Aberfarn Road. The estimated speed of the flow of debris was somewhere in the region of 20 miles per hour, with the wave itself believed to be between 20 to 30 feet high. And from the time the pile began to slide to the moment it came to rest, it was probably just under a minute. It was now 9.15. The local barber, George Williams, on his way to open his shop on Moy Road, heard the roar as it rumbled through the fog. It wasn't until he saw the windows, doors, and then the walls of the houses burst and collapse like dominoes that he realised that something was dreadfully wrong. Miraculously, he was shielded by a sheet of corrugated iron as the slurry swept over him. He was rescued hours later by council workers, and many years later, when describing the experience, he said that the main thing that struck him was the silence. He said it was like turning off the wireless. You couldn't hear a bird or a child. That silence was broken at 9.20 by the croaking cry of the colliery hooter. A colliery that up till now had never suffered a major disaster. Meanwhile, back at Mr Davis's maths lesson, eight-year-old Jeff Edwards was starting to regain consciousness. He could remember nothing after that terrifying sound of thunder had filled the classroom. As he awoke, he could hear the screams and shouts of other children. His right foot was stuck in a radiator and he could feel hot water pouring out of it. His desk was pinned up against his stomach, material from the roof had collapsed on top of him and he could feel the weight of a fellow pupil's head resting on his left shoulder a young girl, the same age as Jeff, killed instantly by the slurry. For the next hour and a half, Jeff struggled to breathe as his classmates, trapped under the torrent of liquefied coal waste, cried out all around him. And as each minute passed, they got quieter, buried and running out of air.
In the adjoining classroom, just prior to the tragedy that would unfold, Mrs Williams had settled her class of seven or eight-year-olds to do some drawing. Seven-year-old Brian Williams, no relation, had arrived earlier that morning as usual with his ten-year-old sister June. Stopping off at the sweet shop first before June left him to join her class at the top end of the school, whilst Brian went on to Mrs Williams towards the bottom end. There was the usual early morning commotion, as several of the children, including Brian, were bickering amongst themselves as they all wanted to get into the Wendy house. Realising there were far too many children to get in, Brian sulked off from his usual seat by the door to sit with his friend Gareth Jones to take his mind off the squabbling and do some drawing together. Many years later, Brian would describe the noise that followed in the best way that he could. He'd never heard a noise like it before. The closest he could compare it to was like the deafening sound of a jet engine coming into land. Realising the noise was coming from the mountain, he stood up to look through the classroom window. Horrified, Brian watched, dumbfounded as the classroom wall split from the bottom to the top. The wall came crashing through and stopped. Then, as with the classroom next door, deathly silence for the briefest of moments before the air was filled with the sounds of crying and screaming. It wasn't until much later that Brian realised that if he'd been sitting in his usual seat that morning, he would not have survived as the classroom wall would come crashing down on his desk. After a while, another teacher, a Mr Williams this time, appeared at the doorway. Brian could just see his head from the gap of the door to where all of the coal waste had come sliding in. Eventually, the children that were not trapped in this particular classroom were handed out one by one to the caretaker. Incredibly, Brian's only thought before he was handed out through the window was to try and go back and get his coat as his mum would kill him if he didn't come back with it. As the children were pulled out one by one from the wreckage, all of those that were able to were told to get home as quick as they could. Looking across the devastation that had now engulfed the top half of the school, Brian realised his sister could not have survived. But as soon as he got home, he couldn't say as much to his mother. He just said he didn't know where June was. Brian, in later interviews, said that his parents had to find that out for themselves and be told by someone else. He couldn't be the one to tell them. In Gaynor Madgwick's classroom, it was a similar story. The rumbling sound of approaching thunder mixed with what sounded like explosions filling the air as if out of nowhere. Again, terrified children were frozen to their seats as the rapidly approaching black mass crashed its way into the classroom. The slurry hit Gaynor full on, but incredibly at the time she felt no pain as she was catapulted right to the back corner of the classroom, knocking her unconscious. When she awoke a few moments later, she found herself on top of her classmate Gerald, and that's when the pain hit her. Amid all the other screaming and moaning of those few classmates that were miraculously still alive, she cried out that her legs were broken. Looking up, she could see Dawn Andrews struggling away through the roof just as it started to collapse. Gaynor cried out to her to get help. Gerald Kerwin, meanwhile, trapped underneath Gaynor, managed to turn himself around to another of his friends trapped there beside him. He said, Are you okay? Can you hear me? There was no reaction. 
and the frothy blood trickling from his nose and down the side of his mouth were all that Gerald needed to know that his friend had died instantly. He had been sitting at the desk next to Gerald, inches apart. One had survived, the other had not. Gaynor, meanwhile, on top of Gerald, was herself trapped by the huge radiator that had been torn from the wall, laying across her lap. Years later, she said that the radiator almost certainly saved her life as it created a barrier, preventing the coal slurry from covering her and saving her from suffocation. By now, she had stopped calling out as shock began to set in. Janet Hibbard was running on top of the slurry five or six feet deep in places in this particular classroom, desperately scrabbling to get out to find help. Gaynor could see the boy trapped next to Gerald with the blood pouring down his face. There was another not too far away looking almost as if he was sleeping. And even as an eight-year-old child, Gaynor knew what death was, and in that situation she knew immediately that they were both dead. Incredibly, considering all the mayhem that was surrounding her, Gaynor picked up a book lying within arm's reach. It was called Through the Garden Gate, its pages soaked with blood. Gaynor, too dazed and shocked to cry, lay there trapped and started to read while all around her the children were crying out for help. Then, as the minutes ticked by, the children started to think that help was not coming and panic started to set in. Gaynor herself had received an injury to her head and there was blood trickling down her own face. She reached out to touch the hand of a child that was laying nearby. A child who'd been in the next door classroom the same as her brother Carl but had been partially forced through the wall by the intense pressure. She held on, pinching the hand, hoping for some sign of life that wasn't there, desperately willing the hand to move. And even today, Gaynor looks back and thinks that when she heard that her brother had died that day, she always holds on to the hope that that arm had belonged to her brother, and in a way, it has always given her comfort. For others, their escape was a little easier, a little less traumatic. Seven-year-old Ross Barstow was busy at her desk that morning, as were most of the pupils in Miss Taylor's class. They'd been tasked with writing a story to do with winter, and she started hers by drawing a picture of a snowman. She heard the thunderous roar of the liquefied coal rushing its way towards the school, saw a crack appear behind Miss Taylor's desk, and as the crack widened open, puffs of dust billowed into the classroom. It felt as if the entire building was shaking, the ceiling lights swinging back and forth, as masonry and debris started to fall outside. And then it stopped. On the orders of Miss Taylor, the class had all been told to shelter under their desks, and as they emerged, they could see that the door was blocked, but not completely. Miraculously, this particular classroom had not felt the full force of the deluge. There was a gap that was large enough for everyone to get through. Lining up the children, Miss Taylor helped them through, instructing them to walk straight out into the yard and not to look back. Aberfan, however, is not just the story of the children, the lost generation as it became known. It's also the story of the bravery and the tireless efforts of the teachers and those that set about trying to rescue the poor souls that were trapped underneath the coal waste. 
David Benyon, age 47, had only been deputy headmaster at the school for six weeks when the tragedy struck. Hearing the sound of the landslide as it came hurtling towards the classroom, he reached out, his arms outstretched towards a small group of pupils that ran towards him, screaming. He and every child in that classroom perished, buried under the sheer weight of the coal waste. And later, when his body was recovered, he was found cradling the lifeless bodies of no less than nine of his pupils, a valiant effort to try and protect them. Conversely, there's also the story of dinner lady Nancy Williams, whose dead body was also found buried in the wreckage. She had used her body to shield five other young pupils, but in this particular instance, all of them survived. Of the 28 adults that died that day, five were primary school teachers. David Evans was the first person to make a 999 call that day. Back in 1966, he was landlord of the nearby pub and one of the very few people to have a telephone. That morning, not even five or ten minutes after the coal slide had hit the school, a neighbour came running into David's, obviously highly distressed, and saying there'd been an accident on Moy Road. A house had collapsed. Could have been a gas explosion, nobody really knew. David dialed 999 and spoke with Murphy Fire Station, trying to pass on as much of the little information that he had. He soon found himself interrupted by the shouts of dozens of people as they ran past. The school's gone, the school has gone, cried one woman as she desperately ran towards Aberfarm village. Relaying this information down the telephone, David was informed that there had been no other calls of this nature so far this morning, but fire crews would be dispatched immediately. Meanwhile, more and more people were running past. David and his neighbour ran out into the street and onto the Macintosh Hotel. From their vantage point, like many others that day, David would remember the eerie silence and the sight of the apex of the roofs piled up upon the rubble spread across the roads. There was no road leading up to the school. More and more people started making their way through, desperately asking each other what was going on. As everyone made their way up the lane known as the brook, the only way through to the school from that point, realisation set in. Realisation followed by mayhem. There were people everywhere, panic, pandemonium, smoke and steam coming from the rubble. As David ran up to Pantglass Road, he could see that the exterior walls of the houses had collapsed and were spread across the road, the roofs still intact and sitting on top of the rubble. Then suddenly, water erupted through the properties as the trunk of the water pipes burst. Water came rushing down through the houses like thick black liquid cement. The force of the water strong enough to knock out any remaining windows and doors of the houses on Moy Road. This liquefied cement-like coal slurry would soon begin to solidify and would create a whole new set of problems for the rescue effort that was about to get underway. Incidentally, David's father had been deputy head of the school, retiring only a few months earlier in the march. 
his position taken over by David Benyon, who had perished whilst trying to protect as many children as he could. The rescue effort started almost immediately. As word spread around the village and neighbouring areas, families, friends and villagers set to work as soon as they arrived on the scene, literally within minutes of the slide coming to rest. The mine itself was notified without delay, and within 20 minutes there was a crowd of miners and mine workers all in the village scrambling over the top of the slurry. The slurry now beginning to solidify at an alarming rate. For the next few hours, there was a frenzy of activity. Time was against them as realisation set in that the children, most of them the children of the miners themselves, were slowly suffocating. This was even more evident as their shouts and crying from under the rubble became weaker and eventually fell silent. The miners arrived to find the women of the village clawing desperately at the solidifying debris, their fingers bleeding, crying out to loved ones trapped beneath them. Fire crews and ambulances arrived soon after and windows were broken to get into some of the wrecked classrooms. Young Gaynor Madgwick trapped beneath the radiator, her hand still clinging on through the hole in the wall to the hand that she desperately hoped would be her brother, heard the scraping sounds of shovels and voices calling out above. As the activity grew louder and more frantic, a face suddenly came into view as a gap appeared above her. She cried out in relief and joy as she recognised the Coal Street face of her own grandfather. Bodies were brought out one by one and handed from person to person to waiting cars and ambulances, some dead, some alive. Bodies crushed and bleeding. Morphine was administered to some of the children before they were even lifted out, such was the extent of their injuries. By 10.30, the first newsflash had hit the radio and television screens, bringing more and more people to the scene, the boots of their cars filled with picks and shovels as they arrived, eager to help in whatever way they could. Because of the precarious nature of the situation, and the fear that any survivors would be in further danger, the decision was made almost immediately that no machinery was to be used. Instead, lorries, barrels, buckets were all filled with bare hands. Every now and again, the whole site would fall silent. Everybody stopped digging. Bulldozers at the base of the mountain shut down as everybody listened to see if they could hear any noise from under the rubble. Everybody in the village played their part. Blankets and pillows were brought from houses for the children as they were brought out on stretchers. Sheets were cut up for bandages and people's homes were opened to harbour the survivors before they could be ferried to the local hospital. And still, the human chain continued passing rocks and pieces of rubble from person to person.
Yvonne Price was one of the first members of the emergency services to arrive on the scene. In 1966, she was a 21-year-old police officer based at the old police station in Murpha. Her shift had started at 9 o'clock that morning and she was due to go out on an inquiry at 9.30. All ready to leave and wearing her Mac to protect her from the miserable, drizzly weather outside, she heard the duty sergeant cry out that the tip had come down on the school at Aberfan. Joining three of her colleagues, they rushed outside and jumped into the first available panda car. What she saw as they arrived that morning stayed with her forever. There was black water everywhere, and floating in it were tables, chairs, kitchen utensils, and numerous everyday household items. People everywhere, passing saucepans and buckets to one another filled with soil, rubble and debris. As they got nearer to the centre of the rescue operation, someone called her over and said, Can you go through this hole in the ground for me, as you're the only one small enough to get through? Taking off her coat, she ducked down and started crawling through a hole, desperately trying to block out her fear of enclosed spaces. Making her way into the void at the other end, she crawled around looking for any sign of life, but there was no one there. Scrambling back through to the surface covered in black mud, She hastily rearranged herself as her skirt had now worked its way up around her neck. By now, a police inspector was on the scene. Turning to Yvonne as she brushed herself down, her hair clinging to her face, he said, If anyone asks you, the hospital is in the classroom at the top of the schoolyard, and the mortuary is in the chapel. Mortuary? How many dead were there that a mortuary was needed? At first Yvonne thought he might have been joking and actually started to laugh. And then, within an instant, she realised that he was deadly serious, and this was something on the scale that no one had ever witnessed before. Yvonne started to help out as best she could topside, watching as the children, both dead and alive, were being passed out through the window on stretchers. Dozens of miners, their faces impassive as they passed on each child to one another, in a seemingly never-ending chain of death that worked its way down from the school to the village below. One miner, looking down at one of the dead lifeless bodies, passed it on to the next in the line, looked up briefly at Yvonne and just said, that was my child, and he carried on working. In 1966, the Reverend Irving Pembethy had looked after a chapel in Aberfan, having arrived in Merthyr three years before. On the morning of October 21st, 1966, he left Merthyr Tiffel about 9.30 to make his way on an errand to Pontypridd. Journey was to take him down through the valley and through Merthyr Vale, which was opposite Aberfan. A thick, damp mist hung heavy in the basin. Irving was unable to see across the valley. As he continued on through the mist towards Murphy Vale, he was passed by several service vehicles. There were often accidents at the colliery, so Irving didn't pay too much attention to the ambulance, the police car and the waterboard van as they rushed past him. As Irving continued on through the fog and the drizzle, he had the strangest of feelings. A voice inside him said, You must go back. And so, by the time it arrived in Aberfan, there were masses of people surrounding the disaster site. Realising there were so many people in the area and that he could be of more use in and another capacity, he thought, there's enough workers here, I must get on with my job as a parson. 
and so he made his way up to the opposite end of Moy Road to Bethania Chapel with some of the fathers as they went to identify their children. There were nurses, members of the St John's Ambulance Organisation and numerous people helping there, receiving the broken lifeless bodies, washing them down and cleaning them up as best they could. The bodies were laid out on the austere wooden church pews, covered in blankets brought up from the village. Irving knew many of the fathers there that day, as he walked round with them as they went from body to body, lifting the blankets that covered the young ones' faces. It was the fathers, mainly the fathers, not the women, who went round trying to identify their loved ones. And as each one was identified, Irving would place his arms around their shoulders and cry with them. And as the church benches gradually filled up and the bodies of the adults that had died that day were brought in, they were placed on stretchers spanning across the top of the pews. The Reverend described it as a night he would never forget. It was beyond words. The identification process continued through the night and way into the following day as more and more bodies were recovered. WPC Yvonne Price returned to Aberfan the following morning and went up to the chapel to assist. As she entered the chapel, she could hear the cries and sobs of the bereaved grieving for their loved ones. And of course, there were the bodies. So many tiny bodies shrouded under heavy blankets. The mortician came up to her, took her to one side and lifted one of the blankets. Can you tell me what colour this child's eyes are? She looked down. She couldn't really say. They could be blue, they could be brown. He replied, You'll do. You're my assistant now. Over the years that followed, Yvonne Price would try to avoid any TV or newspaper stories that mentioned that fateful day. She could never speak about it without bursting into tears. The memories were that vivid. She never returned to Aberfan for another 43 years. Jeff Edwards was the last child to be pulled out of the wreckage alive at 11am, a mere hour and a half or so after the first attempts at rescue were made. Jeff, as you remember, was the young child trapped by the radiator on his leg. One of the rescuers had spotted a tuft of Jeff's very blonde hair amid all the rubble. A fireman, using an axe, managed to break up a desk that was also pinning him down before eventually hauling the radiator away. Jeff was lifted out and passed down the human chain from one fireman to another and then down to the villagers and the others that were there as part of the relief effort. The young police officer, Yvonne Price, witnessed Jeff's rescue and could hear him whimpering as he was lifted to safety. Years later, she recalled that it was like the sound a dog makes when it's hurt and she knew that if a child was whimpering like that, it simply didn't have the strength to cry. Now, of course, we know that Jeff was the tenth child to be pulled out from the school that morning and the final survivor. But back then, the rescuers were unaware that no other children would be brought to the surface alive. And so the rescue attempts continued on and on, with more and more people joining in from surrounding neighbourhoods to help. One of those rescuers was 16-year-old Alan Davis. Alan had just started an apprenticeship in Dowlis and had heard the terrible news during his lunch break. 
His cousin Paul was one of the Aberfan school children, so as soon as Alan had finished work, he grabbed the shovel and set off the mile or so towards the village. As he got nearer, the activity got more intense. Cars, lorries, rescue vehicles, people everywhere. He could see the black cloak that had enveloped the mountain and hundreds upon hundreds of people digging away. People that were just digging relentlessly, not really sure where they were actually digging, what they were digging for and what they eventually might find. Every so often a whistle would blow, everybody would stop. Silence. Because that meant that they thought they may have found someone. If there was nobody there, the whistle would go again and the digging would recommence. Alan stayed until around midnight, absolutely exhausted and wanting to go home physically and emotionally drained. But before that, he decided he should pay a visit to his uncles. On the way, he met his father, who said it would probably be best if he didn't go, as his cousin Paul was dead and his body had now been recovered. Pulled out of the wreckage by his own father. Eighteen-year-old Dennis Moss travelled all the way from Cardiff to volunteer as part of the rescue party. He was in the TA-158 Field Ambulance Division, and although they were off duty, he and a friend put on their uniforms and set off to join the relief effort. On arrival at the scene, his first reaction was of total disbelief. Surely there couldn't be a school buried under all of that. Everybody was hard at work doing what they could to help. Dennis approached a huge mound of wet slurry literally on top of one of the classrooms. The miners were doing most of the digging, shoveling the waste up towards their wives and families. Dennis jumped in amongst them and started shoveling away at the mud. A line of people with corrugated sheets stood as the thick, viscous soil and waste was piled onto them and dragged off down the mountain. As the bodies were gradually recovered, Dennis would stop digging and help carry the tiny mud cake corpses to the makeshift mortuary at the chapel. Nobody left the site. They all continued working relentlessly, sometimes managing to doze off literally for 40 winks, no more. Much, much later that evening, Dennis returned home covered in black filth and absolutely shattered. His mother was up waiting for him and made him a hot glass of milk. Sinking wearily into the armchair, she placed it in his hand and within 30 seconds he was asleep, the glass falling from his grasp and shattering on the floor. Never in my life have I ever seen anything like this. I hope that I shall never ever see anything like it again. For years, of course, the miners have been used to having roll calls whenever there's been a pit disaster. Today, for the first time in history, the roll call was called in the street the miners' children. And even now, at this time of night, more than 12 hours after disaster first struck, little glimmers of hope still run down through the main street. Only minutes ago, someone came down with a faint hope, they said, <coughs> that they'd found a child, and the child was underneath a blackboard. And they thought that the child was alive. Ten minutes before, they brought out a whole pile of bodies 
of 20 children where the whole of this muck had run straight through the whole of the classroom and literally buried them. It has been estimated that the countless number of villagers, miners and their families were joined by over 2,000 emergency service workers and volunteers. What started as a desperate rescue mission became a search for the dead after 11am as Jeff Edwards was brought to the surface. It would take a week to recover all of the bodies. Almost immediately following the disaster, it soon became apparent that official reaction from different organisations and bodies was very mixed. Incredibly, the head of the National Coal Board, the organisation responsible for the mine and the country's entire mining industry, took the decision not to visit Aberfan on that Friday. Lord Robbins instead continued to attend a ceremony and after-party in Guildford, marking his investiture as Chancellor of the University of Surrey. His staff at the National Coal Board then lied to the Secretary of State for Wales, claiming that Robbins was actually at the site directing the relief effort. When he did finally arrive the next evening, he met with TV reporters and told them that the National Coal Board would not seek to hide behind any legal loophole or make any legal quibble about responsibility. By the following evening, the Sunday, there was a definite whiff of denial of responsibility as Robbins proclaimed to the press... I wouldn't have thought myself that anybody would know that there was a spring deep in the heart of a mountain, any more than I can tell you there's one under our feet where we are now. If you're asking me, did any of my people on the spot know that there was this spring water, then the answer is no, they couldn't possibly. This was, of course, as we know, not true. Many villagers had played at them as children before the springs were buried beneath the mountains of waste, including tip number seven, and they were clearly marked on ordnance survey maps of the area. To his credit, the Prime Minister Harold Wilson told the Welsh Secretary of State to take whatever action he thought necessary, irrespective of any considerations of normal procedures, expenditures or statutory limitations. Harold Wilson arrived at the scene of the disaster on the day later that evening and personally shaken by what he witnessed, immediately called for an inquiry into the cause of the disaster. The following day, Saturday, saw the arrival of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, to meet the rescuers and to console the families. Arrangements were swiftly made for funerals of the 100-plus pupils that perished that day. On October the 27th, there was a mass funeral for 81 of the Aberfan school children. How few outside Wales had heard of Aberfan until a week ago. Not till the slurry heap buried the happiness of this village did its name become known to us all. Today, homes were deserted. There was scarcely a dwelling that was not a home of mourning. The angel of death had been abroad over the land. Out of the hillside, they had hewn a common grave. One mother, and 81 children were to be laid to rest together. The little ones were not to rest for an hour or two and then go out to play. It was their last rest of all. As though reproaching the cruel tip that had no mercy for their tender years, they were to lie within sight of it. Wreaths and posies that came from all over the world were laid in the form of a huge cross. It seemed to say that the ways of providence are beyond the understanding of men and women. No use to ask, why are the children to die? 
on the threshold of life, life was taken from them. Congregational minister of Aberfan represented the free churches, the chapels of Wales. And there was the Bishop of Llandaff, and also the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Cardiff, and one who has already done so much, the Mayor of Merthyr Tydfil. was said that 10,000 mourners were massed at the graveside. In that long line of small coffins lay a generation of Abavan. kept wandering to that model of the school in flowers, the school in which they died. I couldn't help thinking time and again that if the slide had been an hour earlier, Abba Van would still hear the laughter of little children. It somehow seemed right that it should be so bitterly cold, for family happiness has gone from Abba Van. I prayed that the years might pass quickly until laughter and joy return to this valley of sorrow. By this time, people had begun to question the absence of the Queen, despite the fact that her husband was there almost immediately after word had got through that this was a matter of national importance. She should have been there. The Queen arrived on the 28th, the day after the mass funeral. And subsequently, she always said that not being there earlier was her biggest regret as Queen. Over the following 60 years, she made a determined effort to visit Abba Farm many times. A generation perished in Abavan. In a few minutes, nearly 200 children, happy because they would begin a holiday that afternoon, were engulfed. And for them, there was no holiday, no half-term. It was to be their final turn. On the site of the landslide, the task of rescue operated with speed. It looked impossible, it looked hopeless. But these men are miners. Their children were buried in that mud. Mud almost filled the classrooms. With shovels, if necessary, with bare hands, they pitted themselves against the uncounted tons of slimy filth, the waste product of coal mining. Perhaps their little sons and daughters might still be alive. The school lay in the direct path of the disintegrating man-made mountain. Faced with calamity, the South Wales miners volunteered help to a man. Then came the command, stop and listen. Someone had thought he heard the cry of a child. Too often the cries had only been in the imagination of the men who worked. 
At 7.30 that morning, a man on the tip warned that a slide might be imminent. An hour and a half later, the children went to school. If fate had stayed its hand a few more hours, those little children would not be dead. Perhaps a brother or a sister might yet be saved. Many times in these Welsh valleys, the price of coal has been paid in human life, yet there has never been anything to compare with Aberfan. Here, death struck above ground, giving the surface the semblance of a mine as the slurry mountain overwhelmed the school. This time, too, most of the dead were children, dying entombed, as men have died so often in the mine. The early dark of autumn came, and through the long hours they worked out. Smoke rose from the slag heap, set burning by fires in the ruined houses. Many of the men worked around the clock while there was still hope that some of the buried children might be reached alive. These men would have gone on digging, even without lights. Some of them, perhaps, have dug in total darkness in rescue operations underground, urged by deep Welsh humanity and a sense of community common to miners everywhere. Here they were spurred even more. Their own children were still in peril if they breathed at all. Religious emotion is a great power in Wales. Was this a punishment unto the third and fourth generation? Illogical, perhaps. But in the face of agonizing disaster, the heart, not logic, is the guide. Fate surely should have spared the children. Next day, the people of Aberfan saw things more clearly. The shock and horror of the first impact had urged them to heroic efforts, but at the same time partly dulled their grief. It came back now. The full tragedy was evident on every side. Families of but a few hours ago did not exist robbed of the children in whom they put so much hope, whom they had cherished. In the valleys of South Wales, calamities have punctuated the century of coal mining. Many a sudden explosion underground has sentenced whole villages to a lifetime's bereavement. Lord Snowden's Welsh sympathies were deeply stirred as he moved about the stricken village. Duke of Edinburgh, though inured to death and suffering in the war, was much moved. This is peace, and the welfare of children and youth have always been dear to his heart. He said he had seen nothing to compare with this. By this time, there could be little hope for most of those who were still missing.
suffer the little children. With new meaning, how those words haunted the senses now. Can it be that their sacrifice, their suffering had to be, to claim the attention of the whole country to the plight of miners and the mining industry? Perhaps in the light of this tragedy, we shall remember them. They must not be forgotten men. Their work goes on. Tragedy can halt, not stop it, at mines economically working. Before the war, old men remembered these valleys, green and lovely. The rolling hillsides, unravaged and unscarred. Soon, men learnt that beauty and mining cannot live side by side. Having served Britain so well, the miners must not be left unemployed as in the pre-war slum. There must be help, not only for Aberfan, but all who toil to win coal. And so, on the orders of Harold Wilson, even before all the bodies were buried, a tribunal was begun, headed by Welsh barrister and Privy Councillor Lord Edmund Davies. 136 witnesses testified over a total of 76 days and almost immediately became apparent that the National Coal Board did everything in their power to resist having the blame pointed at them. It seemed that Lord Robbins, the head of the National Coal Board, had calculated that if he could convincingly claim that they knew nothing about the waterlogged base to the tip, they could not be held accountable for the deaths. National Coal Board officials tried to block the path to the truth throughout the 76 days. Incredibly, they even spent several days denying that the tip slide three years earlier had ever happened. Lord Robbins himself didn't even attend the inquiry until day 70, and even then he tried to be obstructive and denied any responsibility on behalf of the Coal Board. In fact, it was so blatantly obvious that the villagers QC, Desmond Ackner, accused him of acting as if the NCB bore no more blameworthy connection than, say, the Gas Board. But Lord Robbins had not reckoned on the skilful cross-examination of Ackner, and eventually Lord Robbins did admit responsibility on behalf of the National Coal Board. The Davies inquiry rejected the charge of callous indifference levelled at the NCB bosses, but it did tear apart Robbins and the NCB for what it described as a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude with a total lack of direction from above. The tribunal closed in April 1967 and concluded that the blame for the disaster rests upon the NCB. This blame is shared, though in varying degrees, amongst the NCB headquarters, the South Western Divisional Board and certain individuals. Legal liability of the NCB to pay compensation for the personal injuries, fatal or otherwise, and damage to property is incontestable and uncontested. And even after all of this, the National Coal Board still did all they could to resist. The cost of cleaning up after the tip slide had come from donations to a disaster relief fund, not from the Coal Board. And sickeningly, every family with a child that died had to prove to the coal board that they were close to their child in order to receive a payment of £500 in compensation for mental suffering. According to official documents, this was only a little more than what was offered to local farmers for the death of each of their dead animals. And even then, this figure had been raised from a paltry £50. 
And so, the Aberfund Disaster Fund was set up, relying on the generosity of ordinary people from all over the world. Over 90,000 people donated, raising a total of £1.75 million, something in the region of £35 million in today's money. But there was a cruel sting in the tale of this incredible act of generosity. The government badgered the trustees of the Disaster Fund into paying nearly 10% of the total fund about £150,000 towards the cost of removing the other six tips on the mountainside. It wasn't until 30 years later that the Labour government of 1997 returned the £150,000 to the Aberfan Disaster Fund, which was still in place to maintain the cemetery and the memorials to the dead. But even then, if you take inflation and loss of interest into account over the previous 30 years, instead of £150,000, the true figure should have been somewhere in the region of one and a half million pounds to the bereaved families. No one was fired, admonished, demoted, fined or imprisoned after the tragic events at Aberfan. Three years later, in 1969, new legislation was brought in that regulated the tips, ensuring that another disaster would not occur again. And in 1989, the coal mine at Aberfan shut its doors for good. It was one of the largest industrial disasters in British history. Not just because of the sheer numbers of dead, but also because the heart was ripped out of one small Welsh village, sucking the life out of a local industry and robbing that village of an entire generation of innocent children. On August 1st, 1960, an album on the Warner Brothers label reached number one in the Billboard Mono Action Albums chart. It was the debut album for this particular artist and will remain at the top for 14 weeks. The album would stay in the chart for two years, selling over 600,000 copies near release and ranking as the 20th best-selling album of all time on the Billboard charts. Its total running time is just short of 32 minutes. It consists of just six tracks, and it was a recording of a live performance. It won Album of the Year at the 1961 Grammy Awards, as well as Best New Artist for its performer. Yet this was no pop, folk or rock album. It was the first comedy album to win Album of the Year, and the only time that a comedian has won Best Artist. That comedian was Bob Newhart, and this particular album saved the struggling Warner Brothers record label and changed the face of modern comedy and the way the world experienced stand-up forever. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me next time as Rainbow Valley presents the story of the button-down mind of Bob Newhart. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or send us your thoughts and your feedback via email at rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com 
This has been a Stinking Paws production. Thanks for listening.